Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready get 30, ready get 20 20, 20 ready get 20 20, ready get 15 15, 15 15 just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Shall we, shall we restart? We'd like to stick to our, uh, you know, our promise of performance is that we have you all looking at the inside of your lids by 10 o'clock. Because you've all been up very early running the economy or ru- ruining the economy or whatever you've been doing. Um, terrific first half from Mick Wall. And now we're joined by a man who's been on the, the podcast a couple of times before. In one case talking about a book about David Bowie he wrote, and in one case, talking about what I consider one of the best three books written about the Beatles. Full list available on personal application. Uh, But Peter's book was uh, was You Never Give Me Your Money, which is an extraordinary book about what happened to the Beatles after they ceased being the Beatles. But now he's he's got something which I can barely lift here, um, which is an extraordinary book called Electric Shock... From the gramophone to the iPhone, 125 years of pop music. You know, people say to me, oh, you must know a lot about pop music. And seriously, I'm not being, no, there's not false modesty. I do think, seriously, if you know a lot about pop music, all you know is what you don't know. And how much more there is to it than whatever the bit is that you happen to have specialised in, taken an interest in. You know, that pop music now spreads 125 years and it goes off in all kinds of different directions. And it's, it's a massive uh, challenge to bring all this together in, in one extraordinary book. So would you welcome Peter Doggart. So, Peter, how did this idea start? You know, this must have been... A, was this a difficult sell to the publisher? It was a prolonged moment of madness on my part, I think, the whole thing. And was it a difficult sell? No, amazingly enough, it wasn't. Um, it was a difficult sell to my agent, 
who told me it was going to be the death of my career if I wrote this book. And he may well be right. We shall see. Why? <laughs> what, what, what was his concern? Um, that nobody wanted to publish it. And if they did, nobody buy it. And if they did, it, I don't know. I just, I... So what was the kind of, um, you know, they, they all say you've got to have an elevator pitch, don't they, with a, with a book or a movie. You've got to be able to explain it to somebody. I can do this. Go on, give us the elevator pitch for this. It's how the music's changed, how the technology has changed, how music's role in our life has changed. Right, okay. So to start us off, to just to give us a bit of a, bit of a frame for this, you know, you, you're going back to the beginning of recording, really, here, aren't you? Let me tell you how I started. I knew that the history of rock and roll that you got from certain magazine, magazines, not yours, that we won't mention, was telling a tiny bit of the story. It wasn't enough. Even BBC Four was only giving you a tiny bit of the story. So I knew I had to go back further. I wanted to tell a bigger story, a rounder story than anybody had ever done before. So that then you start thinking, OK, well, you can't begin with Elvis. That's not far enough back. So where do you go? You go, oh, Sinatra, obviously, first teen idol. And then you look at Sinatra and, well, actually, Bing Crosby. And then, oh, Louis Armstrong. So I kept thinking, where in the 20th century does this story begin? Where does pop become pop? And I realized that the two most important things in the 20th century were actually in the 19th century. And one of which was ragtime, where you've suddenly got black music going around the world and you've got young people's music going around the world. And ragtime is like punk in a bizarre way in that it's the first music genre that people use the word ragtime as an insult. So if you, you, know, if you want to insult somebody in 1895, you say, you're the kind of person who'd like ragtime. <laughs> Awful. So that's one of the things, ragtime emerges. The other thing is existential change in mankind's history, like the printing press, recorded sound. Originally, you have to be in the room to hear music. And then suddenly, you can take this thing home. You can't hear the music on the record because the reproduction is so terrible, but you can actually buy, you can own a bit of recorded sound. And that everything from that point onwards alters because music exists beyond the moment. So you talk about in the early days, people would gather, as on that illustration there, to actually see, to watch a gramophone performing, you know, to, you know, to playing music to them. That was thrilling to them. It was thrilling in 1959, at the, I think it was 59, at the Portsmouth Guildhall, <laughs> when, the, when they demonstrated um, stereo sound for the first time, and people filled, I don't know, a 2,000-seater Portsmouth Guildhall to hear sound going... Like this. And then at my school in 1973, radio solo DJ Dave Freeman <laughs> came to the school to demonstrate quadraphonic oh. sounds. And I bet you can't guess which record he used. Well, it's obviously Dark Side of the Moon. Dark Side of the Moon, because it was the only one, I think, right. at that point. <laughs> it probably was. So, even, so you could draw a crowd with that even then. But back, back in these days, yes. And um, in the very early days, an expensive single by Caruso or somebody who was a pop star of the era singing operatic arias would cost more than the average weekly wage. And so people would, as a sort of um, a social symbol, in the same way as you probably get young hipsters now walking around Peckham, where my daughter lives, but um, vinyl under uh, limited edition vinyl of, I don't know, stuff Jen Stevens or something under their arm. Uh, I'm, I'm very cool, actually. I've just got the limited uh, edition vinyl. And they were very fragile acetates. Exactly. You could only yeah. play about ten times before... before well, they, they probably were... didn't play them in 1895 because they cost... You know, <laughs> just carried them around, right, as we used to at school. To, exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, And then here you've got, you've got radio... 
When does radio arrive? Quite late, isn't it? Um, as a, as a, a big thing, it's the 1920s, basically, um, in, in America, and then... Yeah, 1920s here. So it's still, it's still seems amazing to me that the people coming back from the First World War had never heard radio. Not only have they not heard radio, they came back to discover that their darling wives, these sort of innocent creatures for whom they'd been fighting against the Hun in, in Germany, had discovered jazz dancing, and they had no idea what jazz dancing was. And so officers were coming back from the front and going to the Savoy. I'm going to skip... Well, this, this is, this I think is we should talk about this. This is an innocent, formerly innocent officer's wife. During the First World War, the officers come back from the Somme or Passchendaele to find his almost virginal wife suddenly dressed like this and dancing like this. Uh, my theory is that this moment, this is pretty much the Charleston. What would she be dancing in this picture? Uh, the, well, I, I suppose the Hitchiku or the... The Black Bottom. But I, black, I, I think this is, you know, is historically, or... this is probably more shocking than anything happened in our lifetimes. Not just because of the music and the syncopation, um, but the clothes they wore, um, the, the attitudes they struck... Um, you know, the haircuts, everything. Or, the, or the amount of flesh on the show. Yeah, you know? or, or the I mean, it must have been completely devastating for, for, the, for, the, yeah. for the people, you know, the older generation. Um, or the clothes they didn't wear in some cases, yeah. because one of the great scandals, it started with ragtime, but it came back in the jazz age, is that young women loosened their corsets. Yeah. And, you know, because they have to, because they're going to move about, have yeah, to dance, yeah. they've got to loosen their corsets. And there is a thesis for somebody, if they, anybody wants a doctoral thesis, about um, the changing nature of women's underwear in the 20th century and what difference that made to their lives. Because if you loosen your corsets, suddenly you can dance the Charleston. I've got, a, I've got a vivid memory of being 14. And let's say I was listening to Sticky Fingers at home on my very similar to Mick, a sort of an ancient gramophone that just that played four speeds, six, 16, 16... Um, 33, 45? Yeah, 38. all that, yeah. Um, I think Sticky Fingers, and obviously my father could hear it downstairs, so upstairs, shouting, go to bed, etc. And my grandmother was saying, she came up later and said, don't worry, dear, when I danced the Charleston, my father thought it was the most disgusting thing he'd ever seen in his entire life. And so I've carried that with me as a sort of badge and of honour. Uh, she was telling the truth right, there, wasn't exactly. she? That wasn't, yeah. that wasn't, you know, a kind of cross-generational pantomime, was it? That was... They genuinely did think this is, this is the end of civilization, didn't they? Yeah, and if, you listen, if you actually listen to the original record of the Charleston, the beat goes... Ch- 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 and it makes people move in mysterious ways. They lose control of their hips. Right. Never mind Elvis the pelvis. This is this is thirty years earlier, and it's young women doing it. So, one, one of the points you're making in the book, if I got this right, is that that jazz the music kind of came after jazz the fashion, or um, jazz the way of behaving. Is that true? There's jazz the music, and there's the jazz age, and they occasionally met. Occasionally, bands in the jazz age played jazz music, but basically, the jazz age was people dancing, dance bands, most of whom wouldn't have recognised jazz. You know, improvisation. My goodness, no! They've got a bit of paper and they're just going to copy it. That was what the jazz age was all about. But it was about drinking, it was about clubbing, it was about going up west and maybe going to the same club as the Prince of Wales later, Edward VIII, um, who had a propensity for playing drums 
George VI played piano, incidentally, and both of them were, were prone to joining in with whichever upmarket band was playing at the Savoy. And so Edward VIII would turf the drummer out and, and, and he would stand in and his timekeeping was apparently erratic. And therefore, as a result, the band would be watching Edward VIII, the future Edward VIII, the entire time. Oh God, he's turned the beat round again. And they would have to follow him. Because obviously the worst, you couldn't embarrass the Prince of Wales. That would be, you know, he could do that for himself quite, quite capably. So, so and he, here we go to, this is the original Dixieland jazz band, who I think I'm right in saying they visited London during the First World War, did they? At the very end of the First World War, They yes. played at yeah. Buckingham Palace, I think? Is that right? <laughs> they, they, well, they, they were on a variety bill, first of all, and they got, they got thrown off after one night because they were too shocking. It was like the Sex Pistols going out with, I don't know, Liberace or something. I mean, it's just, people were appalled by this racket, this noise. They just couldn't understand it. So there's two striking things about, about this group. One is the fact that they call themselves the original. It all yep. seems to me, if you call yourself the original, it's sort of because you're not. Because they, they, cl- they, were, because they were claiming to have invented jazz. Now, we know, what's the first thing we know about jazz? Jazz is black music. Yes. That was the second point who, who I was going to make. Is it Jelly Roll Morton? Who, who invented jazz? Is, is there, can he, you... he certainly claimed he, he did, did yes. I'm, I'm not going to argue with him, yeah. But. Well, loads of people put their name on it one way or another. But uh, they were an absolute sensation, weren't they? They the were, and, and they made the first jazz record. Um, black bands were invited to make records, but they were frightened that if they made a record, somebody would steal their sound, steal their music, so they didn't. Instead of which, the original Dixieland jazz band, they made the first record and managed to go down, at least for a couple of years, as being the, uh, the originators of jazz. So, moving on, you know, this is in the, you know, I suppose, in the, ni- in the 1920s This is the 30s. mid-20s, yeah. Okay. This is, this is a photograph of the extraordinary, legendary Cotton Club in Harlem, in New York City. Now, you know, which films have been made about, many books have been written about. Just explain what was going on. How did no, it I work didn't. an evening in the Cotton Club? Who was performing? Who was going? How did it operate? There were black people in the Cotton Club, as you'd expect in Harlem. However, they were all on the stage. There were no black people in the audience, unless... As an occasional celebrity would be allowed in as a, you know, sort of, well, as long as you stay to yourself and don't talk to anybody, especially don't talk to any black, to any white women, it will be okay. So we're talking about people slumming, coming uptown to, to see a jazz band and to see frightfully sort of whimsical and unusual. And it's almost like going to the zoo to see, you know, the natives of Harlem performing this strange music and they drink expensive it was cocktails. Chic and it was a novelty. It, wasn't it just was. A, it wasn't just a musical experience. It was a sort but of it was, fashion state. It was incredibly, as far as I can ascertain, it was incredibly rigidly segregated in the sense that the performers on stage were, light, were black. Yeah. The dancers were mixed race. Is that right? They, I think they called their 50 sepian stars. Yeah, you know, yes, that's high right. yellows, they used yeah. to call these girls. And, and the audience were white, and it yeah. was incredibly rigidly, you know, that, that template was set down. And what strikes me looking at this, wouldn't it, been, wouldn't it have been amazing, end of the 70s, early 80s, if, if the birth of hip-hop had been like this? Can you imagine, I, I don't know, niggas with attitude or something, being on in Harlem, and everybody coming up from 
you know, the Upper West Side and so on to go and see them in a place like this. It's just unimaginable. But I suppose cultural... you, see, you still have huge hip-hop concerts where probably the majority of the audience will be white, won't you? Yeah, certainly. You still have that. Yeah. So I'm intrigued by this whole area of kind of roots and credibility. You talk about, you talk about Robert Johnson in the book, you know, and give people an idea of, the, of Robert Johnson and how his, how his myth emerged. He's the most famous blues man that nobody knows anything about. And as you can tell, when they put out a compilation album in the early 60s, the first ever album of Robert Johnson, nobody knew what he looked like. Hence the wonderful um, drawing, Robert Johnson from above, because they knew he played guitar. We don't even know if he had a stripy shirt, but we're just guessing. And we knew he was black, and there we are. And he probably had a shadow. So that, uh, that, that is fairly much the sum total of knowledge of Robert Johnson at that point. And this idea, I mean, the, the myth that grew up of Robert Johnson meeting with devil at the crossroads and selling his soul and whatever, this became the, the, the sort of gospel for young white musicians, particularly in Britain and America. And this is what they imagined the blues was all about. It was about selling your soul. It was about a troubadour um, full of pain and agony and expressing himself with existential angst. And in fact, the blues had nothing to do with that at all. In the 1920s, blues is mainstream black entertainment. It's dance music, isn't it? It is dance music. And also... The more miserable the song, the more entertaining it's supposed to be for its audience because it's supposed to be catharsis. You're supposed to be... There's a wonderful thing, I mentioned it in the book, um, the early black blues singer, Victoria Spivy, does a record called TB Blues, which is the most miserable thing Van Morrison did a cover. ever. And, and I can't remember what the actual line is, but basically they sell it by saying, enjoy this brilliant blues record, you know, turn your, get rid of your own blues by listening to Victoria Spivy <laughs> talking about an agonising death from TB. But that's what blues was. It was, you think you're feeling bad, well, this singer up here is but feeling much worse. This search for authenticity? But it, it intrigues me, this, because a lot of it, with, you know, the record companies were run by white, people who came from the north or whatever, they'd go down to the south and, and find singers. And, and they, they wanted the blues. They wanted that particular image, didn't they? There's wonderful recordings of a blind Willie McTell in the, in the hotel room with the Lomax, the older Lomax. And Lomax is actually saying in between the songs, he says, you got any complaining of songs? <laughs> and, and Willie says, no, no, not really. Because Willie wants to play, you know, You Are My Sunshine or yeah. whatever. He says, well, these people did. And Lead, Lead Belly used to wear his prison. Well, yeah, it's, it's all part of the same thing, isn't it? You said that was kind of white construct. Exactly. Uh, if, roots if, music, wasn't it? If you'd seen Robert Johnson in a club in 1936 or 35, he probably would have been playing You Are My Sunshine or its equivalent or pop songs or songs from Hollywood musicals, you know, anything. Anything that the crowd wanted to hear. The idea that he was only a tortured blues man, that was just the bit that appealed to white record company people. And they said, oh, we can sell that. And, of course, then appealed to people like Eric Clapton later on. You talk about Clapton at first, he found it all rather hard, didn't he, to listen to Robert Johnson? Uh, I, I, I think... Because of his own upbringing, he had this tortured upbringing. We're talking about Clapton now rather than Robert Johnson. And the thing about discovering, was his grandmother his mother or was it the yes, other way around? Yes, I can't remember his mother which way around was it. And so I think he wanted music 
He, he wanted music that would represent his own sort of feeling of alienation and loneliness and agony and whatever. And he, like lots of other people, latched on to this. And um, there's a quote from Clapton in the book where he says he hated white people singing the blues, but somehow he was able to make an exception for himself. In his case, <laughs> yes. The, 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 the Carter family here... Bastions of authenticity. Well, you know, they're the ones... That, Jim Carter Cash is a mem- was a member of the, the Carter yeah, family. Yeah. So this is the great first family of American country music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, Wildwood Flower, all that kind of thing. Uh, but, but, you know, we're, we're, we're very much kind of show business construct, weren't they? Is that right? It, uh, yeah, it certainly was. I mean, obviously, they started out at home singing like anybody else would have done. But it became a career. And the, the great thing about A.P. Carter standing in the middle there was that he's, he is one of the most successful songwriters in the history of America. And to my knowledge, I don't know if he ever actually wrote a song in his life. What he used to do was encourage audiences wherever they went to bring songs along that they really liked or songs they remembered or send your songs in we'd really like to hear them and then the next record will be will the circle be unbroken by ap carter and it's probably written by some you know some person some fan who'd sent it in having heard one of their radio shows did anybody ever complain i don't no i i, I, I don't think so because i don't think anybody thought about copyright and money at that point yeah. Yeah, and so. robert johnson would probably never have thought of himself as somebody who wrote songs and he would have thought, I make them, or, you know, I make performances. Is that fair? Yeah, and if, if you're a blues scholar, you can trace almost every Johnson song back. There's always an earlier version of every blues song. So, I want to talk a, bit, a little bit about 1928, which absolutely fascinates me. My theory that there are annus mirabilis of various thing, aspects of popular music. 1928 was the high-water mark of kind of country blues jazz, and so forth. And then it all stopped, didn't it? Why did it stop? Because stockbrokers started throwing themselves out of windows. The Great, the great Depression. And the Great Depression meant that record sales went down from, I don't know, in America, more than 100 million, down to 6 million from one More year than 100 million? Something like that, down to 6 million the year afterwards. Um, record companies got rid of their entire rosters of black artists, I don't know why particularly the black artists got any excuse, I think. Oh, we've got to cut corners, get rid of them. It's a bit like the Tory government today, very similar. Um, <laughs> the same kind of decision-making they, they would do. And so you were left with a handful of the real bestsellers. The, um, the Louis Armstrong and people like that would hang on. He survived, one of the very, very few. But, for example, Bessie Smith, we're talking about the blues. The reason her, her recording career pretty much came to a halt is the Great Depression. And she only came back in the 1930s for, uh, for her last sessions as almost a nostalgia thing by a white record producer. So, you know, so much of the, of the kind of rich culture of country blues and jazz music is kind of revival, isn't it? It is, yeah. It, it was not there at the time. Yep. It was, you know, it was happened, happened years later. But, I mean, any, anybody who's over the age of 30, which I guess is probably everybody here... Um, is fed up with revivals and you read a review of a new album and it's like, oh, you know, a return to the classic 80s sound of Bucks, Fizz and Dollar. And you think, I really don't want to hear that. <laughs> but the whole thing of revivalism, it goes back even earlier than the Great Depression. So um, there are people making ragtime revival records in the early 20s because ragtime's been killed by this nasty, evil jazz. And so, but I want to preserve ragtime. So ragtime is already a nostalgia, a novelty thing. Ragtime is here to stay in 1920. So the impulse 
impulse to go back is really strong all the way in pop music, all the way right through. I think, I think so, because it's, it triggers so many memories. I mean, that's why we're all here, you know, why all of us still play records that we grew up with. No, but it's also this idea of it was slightly better in the past. It's always been better, yeah. Do you think it's, it's that? People have always thought that, have they? Um, d- uh, yes, absolutely, definitely. Um, when I came to write the book... The reason I wanted to join the story up was because, as far as, I, as far as I could see, there have always been two versions of popular music history. The first of which was, it was always better in the 30s, and it was wonderful in the 30s, but particularly they're talking about Gershwin, Cole Porter, Rogers and Hart, and so on. These incredible songs, um, um, the great Hollywood musicals, the great Broadway musicals. And then, as one of the songwriters said, the amateurs took over, meaning Elvis Presley, Bill Haley, rock and roll. And the other, the other sort of story of popular music is that everything before rock and roll was crap. It was so dull, it was boring, and then you get Elvis Presley and everything's very exciting. But isn't the truth... But you don't believe that, do you? No, and the, the, the further, which is another reason why I ended, going, I ended up going so far back, because the, I kept thinking, well, it's going to be boring before 1928. Oh, actually, 27 was a great year. And you just go further and further and back, and all of it was amazing. Now, you, you say in the introduction to the book, I think, that... Um, that doing the book and and um, trying loads of music that you'd previously never been very familiar with or had a deep-seated prejudice against yeah. changed your mind about lots of people. Give us an example of the, of the kind of people. Are you leading me into Bing Crosby here? Well, David no, Bionic you can Child. mention who you like. But go on. Yeah, Bing Crosby. Um, died in 1977, I think. Yeah, around the same... Yeah, because David Bowie was yeah, ki- just made systematically killing people work. off that year, wasn't he? <laughs> yeah, that's um, right. It's the, the only decent thing to do after that record. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, in 1977, who was playing Bing Crosby? He, he was just an embarrassing hangover from a, a previous age. Never looked comfortable. Um, very soon after that, you're getting his biographies by his by um, autobiographies by his daughters and so on coming out saying the man was a bastard. He was an animal. He used to beat us, and so on. So that's and then, and then White Christmas, which is a very tedious record if you take it out of its context. <laughs> then you go back to the 1920s, and you have to remember in, in the early days when you've got those first 78s, um, they didn't have electrical, electrical recording. They didn't have microphones. And so everything was recorded into a giant recording horn, like the, his master's voice logo with the dog and everything. Um, and so they, obviously everybody would be playing at once. And so if you're a singer trying to um, get yourself heard over a brass band or whatever, you would have to sing like this very clearly and enunciate. Because otherwise... Is there a vocal on this? Where is it? You know, it's not going to. You're not going to be able to hear it. Suddenly, electrical recording, and you can purr, you can whisper into people's ears, and people thought this was horrifying seduction. Seduction by record. Young girls having these men whispering to them down the microphone, whispering sweet nothings, and so you you almost get the 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 the, the, the um, first. What's, what's the phrase? Bedsitter bard. Never mind Al, uh, Al Stewart and Cat no, Stevens. Yeah. The 1920s, you've got Bing Crosby because there are young girls in their room with with their record players and or their radios and their radios. Yeah. So ra- yeah. this is an re- incredibly important part of the spread of radios. And, and he's this whispering sudden, to them and the, in your own living room. Indeed, yeah. Which Sinatra took 
a massive advantage of, didn't he? I mean, his, his microphone technique. Oh, yes, yeah. The ability to, to yeah. whisper in girls' ears. So you're an admirer of Bing. I'm an admirer of Bing. There's a wonderful compilation called The Jazz Bing Crosby or something like that, which if you've ever thought what a waste of time Bing Crosby is, I recommend you see, seek it out. I'd add uh, the, the, the uh, duet between Louis Armstrong and Bing Crosby on Gone Fishing. You cannot believe two human beings did that. Yeah. They just, you know, with, with one microphone... Nobody mucked about with it. Nobody edited it. They did it. Yes. They were that good. Yes. It was extraordinary. Now, coming slightly, <laughs> coming up to date, 50 years. <laughs> now we've started. Now we've <laughs> tried. <laughs> Who were those guys we had before? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you linger quite... Well, obviously, you've written about the Beatles in the past. You have a very interesting view of the, the kind of... The, the, the dynamic tension between Paul McCartney and John Lennon and its significance for popular music. Talk it, about that. It suddenly struck me. John Lennon and Paul McCartney the late, in the late 60s represent two entirely different views of what popular music and then rock are supposed to be all about. John Lennon, as we know, authenticity, take heroin, go, try and kick heroin, take heroin again, write songs about it, scream, emotions, no poetry, just get emotions out there. And that leads you inevitably to Kurt Cobain, obviously. Paul McCartney, music is primarily entertainment. His dad plays in a, played in a dance band in the 20s. He grew up on all those, those classic American songs I was talking about earlier. So his idea is that music should be joyful. Fundamentally, it should make you happy. And so in, with, I, I don't know, with all... With the, the Beatles albums in the mid in the, the mid sixties, with Revolver, with Sergeant Pepper, with Abbey Road, he is using every technical and creative sinew that he can bring together to make people happy, to create music that will lift people's hearts, and that is the spirit of the late sixties that everybody loves. We all get oh God, peace and love. It was so fantastic. Not in John Lennon's world, it wasn't. John Lennon's world was all about pain and misery and self hatred and hatred and political anguish. And he's the one who wins. But in terms of the spirit of the late sixties, Paul McCartney is actually the epitome of that. So you mean he, when you say he's the one that wins, you mean his notion of his what rock was there to do gets carried forward? Yeah, and right. It ends up through through metal through punk and then grunge and Nine Inch Nails and so on. You know, Paul McCartney is not an ancestor of Nine Inch Nails. No, no, no. So, I'm not trying to shoot your theory down because it's a really good theory, but John Lennon had the other advantage that even his most painful songs with the Beatles didn't sound like painful songs. So help doesn't sound like a painful song. No, but if you're talking about Cold Turkey, that sounds quite quite a painful song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, So, okay, John Lennon post the Beatles... Did he do anything worthwhile? Um, oh, God. There must be a song, mustn't there? After Plastic Ono Band, after that album. Instant, in, Instant Karma's maybe my favourite record of all time, so we've got to keep that. Power to the People, Phil Spector, great production. Not really. Right. <laughs> so you think it's possible, you think it's possible for, for somebody to flourish just in one set of circumstances for a short period, of, well, what seems like a short period of time, and then have nothing further to add? Um, it, it, it certainly is, and in some ways that's the classic pop career. But then at the other extreme, you've got Duke Ellington, who's a creative genius in 1927, and is still a creative genius in the early 70s when he dies. So, I mean, that's 46 years or whatever of non-stop creativity, pushing himself new boundaries all the time. 
Fair. Okay. I got a picture of Grand Funk Road. Yeah, I wanted to go sublime, <laughs> from, ridiculous. From Duke Ellington to yeah, Grand yeah. Funk Road. Yes. There you go. I, I, think, I think I think they're the reason he died. Aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So I, I I saw Grand Funk Railroad. I'm not ashamed to say this. I think maybe you should be. Um, why, why, why did you Why did you see Grand Funk God, Railroad? God, they were terrible. They were. I saw yeah, them you in say high, that now. In, the, in, the, in Hyde Park, they did a free concert. They came, you know, at the height of their uh, yeah of their their fame in America. They decided they wanted to come to Britain and play to as many people as possible. How were they going to do that? Do it for free, you know. So anybody mildly curious went to see them. And uh, the only things I really remember about Grand Funk was that Mark Farner was the first rock star I ever saw who took his shirt off all the time. Wow. And the drummer, the climax of his drum solo was, was, uh, was hitting the snare with his head. <laughs> <laughs> you got your money's worth. So you're really sorry you missed all that. So anyway, good. Why, why do you write about Grand Funk? I write Rara? about Grand Funk for two reasons. First of which is they are just about the first big rock band and they were huge, particularly with teenagers, with teenagers who were already in 1970, 71, they were fed up with the 60s. They wanted no part of hippies or whatever. They were all taking quaaludes, downers. And, they, and this, was, this was music for, for, for the first sort of 14-year-old depressed kids, really. Um, they were so huge that they sold out Shea Stadium in New York faster than the Beatles did. But they were also the first band who had no roots in all the classic rock, classic rock root stuff. They weren't brought up on 50s rock and roll and rockabilly. They didn't care about Howling Wolf or whatever. I think the earliest stuff they'd ever heard was probably Cream. And so if your version of the world begins with Cream and then you're going to move forward, that's what you're going to sound like. But the other thing is they are also the inventors of AOR, which I mean, you may or may not think is a good thing. But they made a record called Closer to Home, which I think, if you play it, it's like everything that AOR is going to become in 1971. So without realising it, they were pioneers. So, sorry, just a new horrifying aspect of this research has just occurred. <laughs> so, so when you're writing about Grand Figueroa, do you actually go and listen to Grand Figueroa? I listened to, I tell you, I listened... Are you both sitting down? Go on. Yeah. I listened to every hit record from 1890 into the 21st century. At least 30 seconds of everything. There was a, there were an occasional thing from about 1912 I couldn't find. You mean every hit? What are you talking about? Top 30 kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. How do you do How that? How did you do that? I mean, not all of that's on YouTube. Ask my therapist. Um, it's on Spotify or it's on YouTube. You give us half a dozen names of people who really surprise you. We should go and listen oh, to them. Oh, my goodness. Um, Gene Austin, who wrote End of the World, uh, End of the Road, um, the 20s crooner, the sort of Finnegan band, who were sort of the inventors of the kind of music that um, Brian Wilson would make in the mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, I can't think of any more. They're in the book. Buy the book. There are hundreds of them in there. I'm assuming that people... I'm hoping people will buy this book, thank you very much, and then read it with their computers on, going, I want to hear that. I want to hear that. Because it's It's kind of serious. There's a lot about Gene Vincent, where you quote some uh, critic saying, in the Daily Mirror, saying that Gene Vincent sounds like he's singing with a mouthful of lettuce. (laughs) And that was so funny. Yep. You you mentioned Howling Wolf, and I can't let that go without... Mm. You tell the story about Howley Wolf, I think, was booked to play a folk club in Staffordshire. In Staffordshire, yes. In, wait, 62? In 62 or 63, yes. And um, he can't make it, he's not well. He so didn't. who did you get, ladies and gentlemen, instead who, of the wolf? Only who could, 
who could the only people who could possibly replace Howling Wolf in 1962, Robin Hall and Jimmy McGregor, <laughs> who you may remember from Football Crazy, the record. It used to be on Junior Choice all the time when we were kids. So imagine buying your ticket for Howling Wolf and getting Robin, Robin, Robin But I Robin suppose Hall that's, that's kind McGregor. of before the kind of distinctions of hip had been laid down, really, isn't it? It's all yeah, folk you... music, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, all, it's all thrown together. So, disco. Sorry. <laughs> disco. You know, surely the biggest thing of the 1970s. Forget punk rock. Yeah. Disco is it. It is. Well, why was disco so huge? Because people were fed up with po-faced rock musicians. People wanted to have a good time. Surely there was no rock music to dance to. Wouldn't that have been part of it? There was very little rock music in 1976, 77 that made you want to get up and dance. Or, this would have been revolutionary. Yeah, average, average white band or something like that. But even that, I mean, you're getting into disco. Weren't rock radio stations... Did they, did they start a kind of war against disco? Am I imagining this? Oh, they certainly did. Disco sucks, Mark. Disco it's, sucks. Disco sucks. People, people used to have badges. I think Rolling Stone magazine used to sell them. Hard-hitting um, stuff, isn't it? I know. And there, were, and there was... I mean, don't forget, rock fans think of themselves as being radical and right on. And they're terrified of disco because it's new. You can dance to it. People actually enjoy it. Which is no, I mean, th- these are people who want to listen to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and Genesis. They're not used to people enjoying music, you know. Um, so, and worst of all, and I hate to say this, worst of all, there was a link in the late seventies between disco music and homosexuality. And for right-on radical left-wing rock fans, nothing was more terrifying than homosexuality, which is why in a baseball... St- or I can't remember, I've forgotten if it's a baseball stadium or... I think it's a baseball stadium. In the late 70s, you get an American um, shock jock who's prone to going on and talking about gays and disco, because all gay people lisp, obviously. Um, he organised a disco demolition night halfway through the ball game. And where they, everybody, it's, it's like the Beatles in 66 when all the, the born-again Christians bring their records out to be burned. People, are, people go out and buy disco records so they can take them and there's a giant bonfire. And it's, the disco the, industry must have been thrilled. They were over the moon, <laughs> I should think. Sales peaked that yeah. week, yes. And they set all the stuff on fire. And then there's virtually an orgy of violence. The ball game is called off. And guess what? Disco carries on. And here we are. We all live in a disco universe. So one of the things that went along with disco was mechanised percussion. Yep. And uh, Simon Napier-Bell, who we, we, we talked to a while ago, and he, he wrote a book, and, uh, and he, his theory was that, was that uh, mechanised percussion made disco popular because it, uh, it made it possible for white people to dance to it. <laughs> because it's the, really simple. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah, no syncopation. You haven't got to worry about the Charleston and changing, changing so rhythm. Just keep it the same. Yeah, it could be, couldn't it? Yeah. Did you have a Do you have a disco dancing period yourself, or did you you simply study this from the library and you know behind the enemy? I think I've answered your question, haven't I? <laughs> Are you telling me you never went disco dancing? I never went disco. I was far too... I was too well brought up for that kind of thing. You never... Did, did you go? You must come disco I dance. would have thought... Yeah, I would have thought... You mean, it's just nightclubs. Is there, I mean, you, well, they used to call it... It sounds they used to call it go and write a feature about discos. And they'd give you a few quid and you'd go to a bunch of discos with your girlfriend or whatever. Oh, and, I think and write about it. Yeah. And... Uh, Sorry. I wouldn't have gone otherwise, you know, but, uh, but I did You'd that. you paid to. <laughs> yeah. So are you aware of that when you're writing this book, you know, that the kind of 
Are there experiences that you write about that you think, I didn't have that experience? I didn't have the ragtime experience around no, the First obviously. World War, no. And I Coming out for the First World I War. I wasn't bored, I may be, but I wasn't in the jazz age either. Um, yeah, very much. But I've, the whole point of the book was, I, I say in the introduction, I try to throw out all my rock critic prejudices. Because, look, anybody who writes about music for a living, secretly, come on, admit it, we all think we know more than anybody else. Each of you thinks you know more than the other one, and your own taste is better oh, than I and my taste is actually better than both of yours <laughs> so I tr- and trying to get rid of all those prejudices and just open myself up to everything and trying to imagine from reading all the newspapers of the times and playing the records what it was like how exciting it was to listen to ragtime for the first time or jazz or swing uh, swing bands it is it is one of the great things you get out of the book is that sense of newness every five years yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, the, the world is, is completely remade yeah. and with whatever a, the new music is. And as, as you mentioned earlier, it's always the death of civilization. Yes. Every Parents are always terrified of what their the kids are listening to. Um, I couldn't believe it. You go right the way back to ragtime. There always, there's always an archbishop. There's always a politician. Yeah. There are always parents. There are always school teachers who are going to say, this is absolutely disgusting. And that's one of the joys of pop music. Do you music. think that, does, that, does that still happen in pop music? Or has pop music kind of rather slipped? It's lost its position. Well, I, the... I think one of the problems is um, that if people of our age have got kids, that we're not horrified because we've already lived through you know, punk and Einstein. Yeah, exactly. We interviewed them. Who we once interviewed, yes. <laughs> Glad you mentioned oh, them. Yeah. <laughs> Did they used to have a, like a roadie who was in charge of the drills? There was the somebody in charge of the drills. In a concert in Berlin, they dug up the floor with a, with a, with yeah. a pile drive. Yeah. Golden man. Yeah. So after that, I mean, it's pretty tough for our kids to shock us, isn't it? They, they, we, I flipped over the picture earlier on, actually, but you do make a point of this in the book, that the arrival of the Walkman and then the iPod is a very different kind of musical experience, isn't it? Because it blots out the rest of the universe. And I, I found, the first time I... I, I got an iPod. Um, you know, I, I'm, at the age of 50, I was walking around the centre of London thinking, which Jean-Luc Godard film am I actually starring in today? You just imagine that you're in your own music video and everybody else is just a rather boring bit, bit part players, you know, around you. And so if music is all about you. So it detaches you from the world when it's, yeah. when it's presented it's, to you it's, in that it's way. Your world. You're like John Travolta at the beginning of Sabbath Dark Fever, aren't you? You're... Well, I still am, but yes, yeah. <laughs> I was always rather horrified when the, when the iPod arrived when I was, we were at Word magazine. I can remember thinking that the big disaster, there were lots of advantages about it, but the big disaster was it separated music from the idea of the context in which it was made. Yeah, and, and that, that yeah. would stop people having an idea of wanting to discover who this band were, yeah, and, yeah. and get a magazine to reactivate that world that they didn't live through. But this, which, again, is one of the reasons for writing the book, to be able to say, if you want the context, there yes, is the context. Yes. Yeah. But, but I, I mean, I, I grew up with this. Um, our younger daughter, um, 10 years ago, was 15, and she was just, just graduating from the NME. She was born with the NME at the age of 15, which I think explains why it's now defunct, pretty much. Because um, if you can't keep the 15-year-olds, you're in real trouble. 
And she was discovering music by herself. I mean, I had a huge record collection, but I wasn't saying you must listen to the following classic 1960s albums in this order. She basically just discovered things for herself. And from her room, probably it probably wasn't iTunes then, but I don't know what it would be, MySpace or something, um, would come suddenly out of the blue. Besides, who was she listening to 10 years ago? Mystery Jets. Besides Mystery Jets, she would also then suddenly, that's Bill Haley. Or I'd be saying to that's my wife, Grand Funk Railroad. Well, no, <laughs> yeah. we never got to that. But we did get to the Shangri-Las and Serge Gainsbourg and so on. And she had no idea which order this stuff no, came this in. No, this is it. It's a sense of chronology. And she still doesn't care, but she, yeah, just, they don't care. she just loves it. Yeah. Chronology is completely yeah. gone. Whereas, and chronology, yeah. when, you, when you grew up, when I grew up with this stuff in the 60s, that chronology is hardwired into me. And my trouble is, what came after yeah, it, we're, we're still stuck with that now. We still need to know. Was it was it the Tuesday morning they made that? Yeah. And, you know, this picture I couldn't resist. This is a picture of I don't know how well people can see that of Nick Kent in the dressing room with a couple of main members of Doctor Feelgood, and at the front the great Martin Stone of Chili Willy and the Red Hot Peppers, <laughs> wearing a tea cozy. Um, that must have been during the Naughty Rhythms Tour of 1976 or 75 or something like that. And you talk in the book about punk rock was sort of very much wished into being by the music press. It was. I think if the, I mean, obviously if the music press hadn't been there to cover it, it would have died because nobody would have made any money out of it. But there was a whole generation, um, Nick Kent included, of music journalists who were suspicious of the fact that music wasn't as exciting for them as it had been when they were 13 or 14. And they hadn't realised, look, you're getting old, that's just what happens. So they, they kept, they almost imposed this agenda that music has to be stupid and loud and really basic. And over and over and again, particularly in the NME, you've got these manifestos coming out. Um, what's the man's name? Mick McFarren was the, was the, was the, wrote the best manifestos, but Charles Charmurray, Nick Kent, many of those writers just kept hammering the point. You've got to sound like Iggy and the Stooges. You've got to be stupid. And so you get stupid music being put forward for the first time. Stupid is used as a compliment for the first time in the history of mankind. And uh, so, although when it came along, they, they actually were a bit horrified by it. Some of them. Well, well, yes, I mean, Charlie wrote the first review of the Clash. He said they sound like the kind of garage band who should be left in the exactly garage yes. with the engine on. <laughs> yeah, I know. Which is, yeah, which is <laughs> yeah. And and of course, poor Nick Kent gets beaten up by members of the, the Sid Vicious, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it took a long time for them to work yeah, out the yeah. hierarchy. Where you know, we're all right with this lot, we're not all right with that. And in fact, no. um, I love this picture. By the way, I love the idea that Nick's obviously come into uh, Doctor Feelgood's dressing room. And no one's taking any notice of him, so he's picked up their guitars and started to play. They must have been furious. <laughs> it can't be his guitar, can it? You wouldn't have thought so. You wouldn't have thought so. But, it's a great picture. So this brings us neatly to the present day. I'm and, just looking to see if any of my daughters are in there, but they're not. <laughs> no, okay. And, uh, you know, and, and nation in anguish. Um, no, I'm sorry, I shouldn't tell them, Mick. Um, you know, One Direction's kind of... Uh, well, it's not a split-up, is it? It's a hiatus. So it's, it's a hiatus. It's coming back, of, Dave. It's kind of announced like a corporate, like Marks and Spencers are closing yeah. this store and they're going to open that one and so forth. I mean, don't you, don't you look at this and feel very cynical about it? You know what I, mean? I feel cynical, but are they cynical about it? That's, that's the important thing. It doesn't matter what we think. You know, I mean, we're over a certain age. In fact, we're over several certain ages. They... <laughs> These girls actually look suspiciously as if they've come from central casting. Yeah, they, they do rather, don't but, they? Um, 
they and their friends, this is the world to them. So, and it always will be. Every new boy band will be the world. But the, the, I think there is a shelf life for a boy band, and interestingly, the Beatles keep to it as well. Um, it's six or seven years. Maybe One Direction have done five, because time's speeding up as we get closer to the end, end, end of civilization. But um, <laughs> six years is enough for them. They can't stand it, or themselves, or each other any longer. And plus six years, their fans get to the point where actually starting to get a bit embarrassing. But obviously, in twenty years' time, they'll be on tour with all the other boy bands. Well, that's the, the thing, isn't it? Yeah. In the same way as all the eighties. People. I mean, I mentioned Bucks, Fizz and Dollar. People now pay a fortune to go to Kew Gardens or whatever and see these people performing. They would have turned them off 30 years ago, but now it's like... I never get nostalgia. I think it's fantastic. My I, knee, I, yeah. I remember when, when Take That split up, and I, was, I think I was the editor-in-chief of, of Smash Hits. It was huge, I, wasn't it? And yeah. I went down to the Smash Hits office and said, this is fantastic. This is the news we've been waiting for. This is going <laughs> to be the biggest selling... And, yeah. and they were all sitting on the floor in a ring of candles. So playing <laughs> Take That Records. Okay. No, we've got to be professional about this. What's going on? They were, girls were weeping. I mean, honestly. It only struck me this week. I was thinking about the monkeys, and the monkeys are about to come a tour here again. The monkeys are the most influential pop group of all time. How many monkeys are left? What, was Nesmith? Mike Nesmith? Can't be. No, he's not. No, he's not. He's not doing this talk. It's Dolins and talk. That is. Nesmith sometimes joins them. But the point is, the most, the most you know, influential group of all time. Because look at all the other groups who've been based on the monkeys. Yeah. They started that template. And they will go on forever. They'll be group. I'm not saying whether it's the best, but they're the most influential. Beatles can't be that influential. Because the Beatles influence people to think they can write their own songs. Most of them can't. <laughs> We've all got the scars to prove it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what the monkeys did, anybody can do. With enough money and production talent, yeah, they'd watch the Beatles first. Indeed, yeah. Well, okay, there's there's that as well. So, they, they you know, the, the kind of the driver or the key, the, the the beating heart of popular music throughout your 125 years is teenage girls. It's teen, teenage girls and teenage boys, but it's it's young people dancing. It starts off. The whole point of ragtime is to get people to dance, jazz, to get people to dance, swing, swing dancing, rock and roll, people are going to dance. The, the, the sole moment when this is not the most important impulse is the rock era of the 1970s when we all grow beards and stroke them and become very serious and write concept albums and so on. Um, and that's when rock becomes a culture and suddenly we're all too cool to, to be dancing to, as I mentioned, Emerson, Lake and Palmer or... But people my, were dancing to T-Rex and Sweet. Yeah, and they, they were, but not, not, the, not that old, slightly older generation. And would, you, would you support me in my prejudice that teenage girls... <laughs> Teenage girls are a far better guide to quality than teenage boys. Because teenage girls like what they like. Teenage boys like what they think they ought to like. There's, yeah, there is, there is something about that, isn't there, I think, yes. Because, just, just thinking about my wife, who's not a teenage girl, I should point out. Um, she likes music because she likes it. She doesn't, it doesn't care who's playing bass. She doesn't care if it's a solo album by, from somebody who used to be in The Birds. You, it's not of any interest to her. You, you used to play a record in the Word office or the Q office or whatever, and, and people would go, who's this? And then when you told them who it was, they'd decide whether they liked yeah, it. Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 See, that's a very male yeah, reaction. It's, 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 it's an amazing acoustic track. Yeah. <laughs> rubbish, absolute rubbish. <laughs> so listen, that's one of thousands of subjects that are, that are covered in this massive, this panoramic 
view of 125 years of pop music, which, Peter, I'm sure we'd be very happy to sign for you and sell to you. Especially uh, so. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much for coming, all of you out here. And would you please well, uh, say thank you to Peter Doggart. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. <laughs>